Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Start tonight on a series of talks on uh, practice as a path to happiness. Happiness and joy. As uh, Sally mentioned in the opening night, this has been a a theme that I've been exploring for some time and um, think that at times there's so much emphasis on suffering and the end of suffering that we can forget that this is not only about suffering and the end of suffering, but the end of suffering really is happiness. It's the highest happiness. Last night when Carol was talking, her lovely talk, I enjoyed it so much. And she said that the Buddha was motivated to teach because he saw all around all the beings he he saw with his divine eye wanting to be happy and doing the very things that would cause more suffering. And that was what got him to leave his blissful state and devote the rest of his life, 45 years of his life, to showing people the way to true happiness. And he was sometimes called the happy one. The Dalai Lama in his book on the art of happiness opens the book, the first line of of that book says, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a nice way to start a book, isn't it? And probably many of you are familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh's line, suffering is not enough. We can understand suffering and the nature of suffering, but that's only one side because it's just what we incline our minds or where words lead us to open to um, other possibilities than simply dealing with suffering. So, how, how does it happen that, well, I'll say for myself, in my own uh, practice, I have seen particularly one period of practice where for, for quite some time, for a few years, where I saw the, the practice path as one of somehow um, dealing with suffering, opening to suffering, coming to terms with it, but somehow I, um, I wasn't being a good Buddhist if I allowed myself to really be happy. Now, I, I don't know if that's, if that's something that others have felt, but uh, it was something I had to come to terms with. And because of my, mo- my own misunderstandings of the teachings, uh, I fell into that trap. I'm wondering, how many people can relate to what, I, what, I'm, what I've said? I'm just curious. Okay. 
And some people from the beginning see, oh, this is the path that I've been looking for that will lead just to what I, I long for. But I think it's useful to put an emphasis on this as, I'm, as we're practicing to just hold our practice in a context of uh, developing more and more happiness. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, who I love, one of the leading teachers in Theravadan Buddhism, who comes here from time to time, and he has uh, centers all around uh, all around the, the world, and uh, is based in England. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. <laughs> or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things and of life. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us in them we find joy. And it's all throughout the teachings, this um, honoring and valuing of joy and happiness, but uh, sometimes it can get lost, as I say, in the, in the shuffle as we're looking at suffering. It's in the seven factors of enlightenment. Joy or rapture is, is a factor of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment, by the way. <laughs> the Brahma Viharas, as you see walking by the buildings and you see loving kindness and compassion and then the third building, ah, joy, I'm in joy, this retreat and equanimity, it's the fourth. It's in the, the jhanas, the concentration t- states, rapture and happiness, piti and sukha that Howie mentioned the other day. And the Buddha said, if you really um, experience the happiness of certain meditative states, you're not looking for it outside. And this is a very wholesome thing. It's, it's part of the eightfold path, uh, that right concentration, which can include states of, um, of joy. And then there are words like gladness, pamoja, and rapture, and sukha, happiness, there's peace. So all of these, it's right there in the teachings. So I I just want to emphasize as we go through these talks. The Buddha said, go for the highest happiness, and you'll get all the other ones. 
But he said, it's really important to find out where true happiness lies, because otherwise you'll be looking for it in the wrong places. And it's all too easy to get misled in our busy world and with all the messages that we get, all these, uh, it was in Inquiring Mind a few issues back where it was said that the average American gets bombarded with 3,000 microjolts of advertisements saying, have this and you'll be happy. 3,000 a day. 3,000 jolts a day saying, this is where happiness lies. I have this one ad that I'm... I left it home. Sorry, I, I love it. I, some of you have seen it. Called the the gold shivers with this beautiful woman with gold all around her necklace and earrings and bracelet, and it says, "Among life's pleasures, help this, uh, hold this deeply felt euphoria as unique." The gold shivers. The only way to get the gold shivers is to get the gold. So as we open to where happiness truly lies, where joy truly lies, it creates more space in the mind and in the heart so that we can hold the hard stuff. You've heard the expression, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And if you're just focusing or tuning into the sorrows, it gets overwhelming. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows are all part of the fabric of life. And the more we can open up to the joys as well, the more space we have and energy and inspiration we have to be with the sorrows and the sufferings that are inevitably part of life. The first noble truth, there is suffering in life. And the Buddha said, the more you come to terms with that, the more you don't flinch and run away from it, the more you're able to come to the end of suffering. And so I'm not talking about denial here. I'm not saying, oh, let's just focus on all the good stuff but let's just hold it in our hearts as we open up to all the suffering. So, how does this practice lead to happiness? Well, I'll start this section with famous quote, the basis of which all of Buddhist meditation is rested upon. O monks or O practitioners, said the Buddha, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize the highest happiness, Nibbana. And this way is the establishments of mindfulness. So this is 
one way to hold our practice that in the moment of mindfulness we are overcoming sorrow and lamentation and grief and anxiety and despair and we are heading in the direction of the highest happiness because mindfulness as I think has been mentioned uh, in, in some of the talks in one of the talks it has a purifying force it weakens all the mind states that lead to suffering including grasping, attachment, aversion, ill will, confusion, delusion, ignorance and all the other mind states, the hindrances, doubt and restlessness and and sloth and torpor. It weakens those and it strengthens all the wholesome mind states non-greed or generosity, non-aversion, non-hatred or loving-kindness, non-delusion or clarity, wisdom, plus a whole host of all the wholesome qualities, generosity, compassion, uh, loving-kindness. In the moment that you're mindful, every single moment that you're mindful, you're undercutting those habits that lead to suffering and you're developing those habits that lead to happiness and joy. That's something I keep in mind when I'm practicing that's uh, always been a great source of inspiration for me. When I really got it, every single moment I'm mindful counts. Every single moment I'm mindful, I'm weakening forces that cause me suffering and strengthening forces that lead to my happiness and joy, then I want to have as many moments as I can of that throughout the day. It's something to reflect on because it doesn't seem like much is happening. You're just lifting your foot, putting it down. Big deal. Okay. Breathing in, breathing out. We just had one a moment ago. Big deal. Breathing in, breathing out. Here it is again. Breathing in, breathing out. It doesn't seem like much is happening, but actually, when you reflect on that, every moment that you're not grasping at pleasant experience, pushing away unpleasant experience, or getting confused by neutral experience, is a moment that you're developing freedom. You are free in that moment. And those moments developed in a momentum leads to an ever-deepening abiding in that freedom. So that's, that's a very useful thing to keep in mind, how this practice leads to happiness by developing mindfulness. Now, how do we cultivate mindfulness? And this is what the heart of the talk is that I want to spend some time tonight with you on. And that is wise or right effort. Now, you might think, oh, gee, I thought we were going to talk about happiness. 
Here he is talking about effort. Okay. They are directly connected. And if you see your effort as held in the context of leading to happiness, then you establish a, a real appreciation of this wise effort. And it's not just effort, it's wise effort. You know, if you go by the gate and you see the, uh, the, uh, the prayer wheel, you ever notice which one you get as you pass? Whoo, wise, wise speech today. Well, that's pretty easy. You know, oh, wise mindfulness. Hmm, okay. Oh, wise effort. How do you relate to it when you get wise effort on the wheel? It's a very important issue in practice because it's so easy to get caught in, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Am I not doing enough at all? So I want to talk about wise effort. I want to talk about it from two aspects. One is relating informal practice, and one is relating directly to this uh, developing of happiness, um, as you'll see in a moment, when we get to the classical definition of wise effort and seeing it as a, um, um, as a direct uh, development of happiness and joy. Formal practice in the Eightfold Path, the last three aspects are wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And they're in that order because that's often how they develop. In the same uh, order in the five spiritual faculties, faith leading to effort or energy, leading to mindfulness, leading to concentration, leading to wisdom. The way to cultivate mindfulness is making the effort to be mindful. Now, what is wise effort? It's a balanced effort. If it's too loose, too lax, doesn't make it. Well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not. I'll just sit here and maybe mindfulness will come and visit me. Good luck. It hasn't for most of our lives as we walked around in our daydream, in our sleep. It takes some effort and intention to get here. But if we're too tight about it, I'll be mindful if it kills me. It might, if you have that attitude. You know. <laughs> that won't do it either. And you're probably many of you are familiar with the exchange that the Buddha had with some very zealous monk who was trying so hard and getting all wound up in knots and and he was saying uh, this is not working and the Buddha said uh, weren't you a musician uh, before you became a monk in your former life and he said yes uh, I was I played the lute and he said well what happened when you tuned the string too tight oh it didn't get the right note. It was too high a pitch. What happened when the string was too loose? Oh, too low a pitch, not the right note. 
just so, if you turn it, tune it just in the right amount of tension, you got the right pitch. It's the same with this practice. You don't want to get too tight, and you don't want to get too loose. So it's balance that's the key. Because when we're balanced, we can then see clearly and meet the moment with wisdom. When we're off balance, we get confused, we get lost in our stories, we get tight, we get contracted and fearful, we become aversive or grasping for something to make us feel better. So balance in the sense of a spacious awareness that can see clearly that is really connected with experience, that is the key. The thing is, though, you can't find just the right amount to do and say, oh, this is my degree of wise effort. Because you are a dynamic system that is constantly changing. And so it depends where your energy is at, what kind of energy or effort will be wise. You know, and it comes up in many different ways. On the cushion, okay, I've got this unpleasant sensation. I'll just stick with it. That'll be a good, good meditation. Should I stick with it even longer? Or should I just back off? Or I've got this strong emotion. Should I stay with it or just give myself a break? Or should I take the eight precepts or not take the eight precepts? I think I'll be a good yogi and take the eight precepts. Oh my God, what did I get into? You know? Oh, this is really inspiring. I took the eight precepts and I'm lighter. How wonderful. There's no right or wrong. That's the thing. No right or wrong. If you feel like the walls are closing in, that's a clue to get a little bit of space. If you feel like you're just kind of hanging out and lolling about and not really getting anywhere, that might be a clue too. So, on top of your own sorting it out, you also will get different messages from, from people up here. Or you might read in a book. You know, there's all different styles of practice. You can be with one teacher who says, heroic effort, that's what this is about. I was practicing with one teacher who said, abandon all concern for the body. You know, if your leg is falling off, just note it. You know, that's basically the message that I was getting. Um, and it's fabulous to practice with that inspiration if you've got the energy to do it. The Buddha said, strive on diligently. Don't miss this opportunity, this precious human birth, is how we talked about the other night. It's so, so rare an opportunity. Make the most of it. Or it's sometimes said, practice like your hair is on fire. You know, that'll get you going. You know? 
hopefully it'll get you going in the right direction. But it'll get you going. That's one attitude of practice. And I've practiced like that myself and, and have found it very, very valuable and inspiring. On the other hand, you might be with a teacher or you might hear the message as Manindraji, uh, one of my teachers and Joseph Goldstein's uh, main teacher, would say, simple and easy, just simple and easy, empty phenomena rolling on, or Ajahn Buddha Dasa saying, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Everything happens on its own. When the third Zen patriarch, it says, just let things be in their own way and there'll be neither coming nor going. That sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I like that style of practice. Yeah. Okay. So, which is, which is right? Like I say, there's no one right way. And I used to think there was one right way. I learned this lesson. I just shared this with my, my group in Berkeley uh, a, a week or so ago. I was so in so much pain and suffering when I came to practice that I believed in the possibility of, of changing when I met Joseph, my teacher. He was so inspiring. And for the first time in my life, when he said it's actually possible to not be run by your neurotic thought patterns, I'd never entertained that as a thought a possibility before, but I was so inspired by him. He seemed like he knew something that I didn't. I said, okay, I'm going for it. And I, I do like to practice wholeheartedly, thinking, okay, that's the way to do it, when it was so beneficial for me that I thought that's the way everybody should do it. Turn up the jets, full steam ahead, you know, heroic effort, abandon all concern for the body on... Um, one three-month course, it was, my, uh, it was in 1981, I sat the course uh, with my then girlfriend, now wife, of 23 years. And I gave her all the tips on how she should practice. <laughs> Thinking that I was doing her a big favor. It was no big favor. You do this, and you do this. Don't let a moment go by. Well, she actually um, developed a a pre-ulcer condition because she thought she should look like like me. And Joseph kept on saying, that's his practice. You do it your way. And I learned so much from that, realizing... Everybody has their own forward edge of practice. It doesn't look any one way. We have to be really honest with ourselves and see what is our forward edge of sincere effort. This is... uh Ajahn Sumedho, who I just read a little bit before, he said, in my first years practicing with Ajahn Chah, I used to be very serious about meditation sometimes. I really got much too grim and solemn about myself. I'd lose all sense of humor and just get 
dead serious. All dried up like an old twig. I'd put forth a lot of effort, but it would be so strung up and unpleasant thinking, I've got to, I'm too lazy. I felt such terrible guilt if I wasn't meditating all the time. A grim, joyless state of mind. So I watched that, meditating on myself as a dried stick. (laughs) And when the whole thing was totally unpleasant, I would just remember the opposites. You don't have to do anything, nowhere to go, nothing to do. Be peaceful with the way things are now. Relax, let go. And I'd use that. So, how do we do wise effort? There are some things that I think it's, uh, it's important to keep in mind. The first is that we can't judge our effort by whatever is happening, by whatever the results are that we have in any one moment. Oh, I'm really... Uh, having so much emotion, I'm just a, pa- a basket case. You know, I can't be practicing right. Or you hear somebody else sobbing and crying near you, and you think, "I'm just flat here. I'm feeling my breath, but I'm where's all the juice? And you know, I'm missing out on it. I must not be practicing right." We have all kinds of ideas of what a good meditator might look like. like. And if you think it's a hindrance-free yogi, let go of that. Like Carol was saying last night, a good practice is one where there's aversion, and you see, oh, here's aversion. It's like this. Or there's confusion. Oh, confusion's like this. But it's so easy to get into the tendency of judging by how clear we are in any one moment, or how confused we are in any one moment as an indication of skillful effort or not. Oh, he's really going slow. He must be really doing it well. I know what it's like to go really slow and be on Pluto. (laughs) And I've mentioned it before. I used to, at some point, I'd, I'd be walking and just kind of realizing I was walking partly because I hoped I was doing okay and I'd be using the note lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, moving. <laughs> Actually, when I was noticing it, that, that, was, that was okay practice. But you can have all kinds of ideas about what you should look like. Let them go. Because... Practice doesn't have effort, doesn't have anything to do with what you're, you're looking like or what's happening. Wise effort is a skillful relationship to what's happening. And it's really about how can I meet this moment without struggle and with clarity? What can bring me to this moment? And so we're always making an adjustment. Oh, I'm getting really tight now. 
if you're a type A style of person, then your forward edge might be lightening up. It might be going for a mindful walk or going for um, a cup of tea, a mindful cup of tea. If you're not a type A, a type, what's that? Z. <laughs> Z. Then it might mean that your forward edge is really staying connected with why you're here and not setting yourself up for the limits that you think you'll have. Oh, the wake-up bell rings. I don't know. I think I'll be exhausted if I... You don't know. You don't know. Just try and see, just for the fun of it. Or the talk ends, you go for a walk, and there's my bed waiting for me. And you know it's going to be so good and so supportive to your practice. (laughs) You'll just have so much energy tomorrow. You got a little energy now, but you'll have so much more tomorrow. You don't know. So let go of what your limits are, what you think you can do, because the amazing thing is when you start moving through them, not because you're trying to be a good yogi, but because you're just seeing, you're just exploring, you're just kind of checking it out, then it becomes an adventure rather than some kind of pass-fail test. You can always take care of yourself. You can always back off and say, oh, okay, I'm getting a little tight now, or I... I was up really late or woke up, you know, two or three in the morning and I did put my time in and now I'm tired and I need a nap. You might be surprised as the retreat goes on to know that there's a a club of people who come in here, you know, three, four in the morning and it's really fun to practice with them. But... If you say, forget that, that's not for me, okay. But when the five o'clock bell rings, come and join them. Just see. And the same way with dealing with, working with pain. How can I, should I stay with this? Is this going to be too much? It might be too much. If you find that the pain is still continuing after you've hung in there with it, then that's not so helpful. You want to be attentive to your body. You don't want to be a supreme macho meditator. That'll just get you tight and twisted up. And so I find it helpful to just take it for chunks at a time. Okay, for the next minute, let's feel this pain. Let's just check it out. Or half minute. Let's just see it, what it would be like to be with it without trying to bargain or hope that it'll go away if somehow I magically fall into some mindful groove. To just say, okay, it's like this. Oh, here's twisting or tightness or burning. And then at the end of that time, you can just take a break and back off and be with sounds or take a breath. If you think that you're supposed to be with pain, because that's what's predominant, you're also missing 
the idea because if you stay with a very intense, strong sensation for too long a time, you get very fatigued. The mind withers, as it's sometimes mentioned, talked about, and you get contracted and confused. So it's not like, oh, I'm supposed to be with what's, what's here. Sometimes the most skillful thing is just to take a break, just to back off, just to get some space, just to move very mindfully. The same way with emotions. Take it a small chunk if it seems overwhelming. Okay, for the next minute, let's be with this fear. Let's just check it out. And in that not adding the aversion or the fear on top of it, that welcoming, that exploring starts to change your relationship to it and you see that things are much more workable than you thought often. Just take it a little at a time. Okay, for the next minute I can be with this. And then you can back off. If the breath feels really confined, okay, they said stay with the breath, I'll be with the breath. Just open it up. Let yourself feel your whole body breathing or open up to sounds. And if you're getting really spacey, if the spaciousness turns to spaciness, okay, let's come back and really refine the awareness. If you're getting very tight, go for a fast walk. If you're getting very spacey, Go for a more focused, refined walk. The key to wise effort is your sincerity of heart. Not what it looks like on the outside, but what you bring to the moment. You can't maintain mindfulness or concentration. It's completely out of your control from what I've seen but you can make the effort to be here as best you can and when you've gone to bring yourself back. And here's the little secret about effort. 100% effort actually becomes easier than 70 or 80% effort. Now, what do I mean by 100% effort? Not what I told my wife to do in 1981 but it means having a sincerity that asks, a wisdom that asks, how can I best be with this moment? What do I need to do that will support my mindfulness in this moment? Because those moments of mindfulness build on each other and develop into uh, stronger mindfulness and concentrated mindfulness. And the thing is, when you become more mindful, you see more. And when you see more, it's more interesting. And when it becomes more interesting, you want to be here more, with more careful attention because there's a whole show going on that we normally miss. So it takes some intention at the beginning and some effort at the beginning, but it actually is easier in the long run because you get that momentum and the mindfulness invites you to be here oh yeah, let's be here for this show. Whereas 70% effort or 50%, well, maybe I'm here and now I need to take a little break. Your mindfulness isn't so strong because you keep interrupting and, and, and you'll hear talk on concentration um, I think from, uh, from Guy soon. And 
and he'll tell you a lot more about that. But when the concentration is not there and the momentum isn't there, the mindfulness is weak, and then things aren't quite so compelling and interesting. So it has its own cycle, its own spiral, and you can choose in each moment, but just know that the moments of mindfulness build in each other. Let the effort come from a sincerity of heart. So that's the wise effort on formal practice, which develops mindfulness, which leads to happiness and joy and the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation. Then another aspect of wise effort that I want to talk about, particularly with this cultivating, awakening joy. And that is the classical definition of wise effort. And there are four components to it, as some of you are familiar with. The first two have to do with unwholesome states, guarding against unwholesome states that haven't arisen, and overcoming unwholesome states that have arisen. That is, if you're feeling confusion or fear or sadness or anger, there are ways to overcome those states. Mindfulness, metta, a number of other ways. And then the second two aspects of wise effort have to do with developing of wholesome states. Actually, one is developing wholesome states that haven't yet arisen. And by wholesome, meaning those mind states that lead to well-being and happiness. And maintaining and increasing wholesome states when they have arisen. That is an aspect of wise effort in a classical sense. Developing wholesome states, we do things like cultivating mindfulness and doing metta practice or compassion practice or generosity practice. And, and through the through the, uh, this series of talks, I'll talk about different ways of developing wholesome states. Maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen when you're feeling a sense of well-being, when you're in the middle of a, of a state that actually is quite um, skillful. The Buddha says, it's good to maintain it and increase it. And I'll talk for a moment about that. I just want to mention one thing about this right effort in terms of the wholesome. Another line that that the Buddha has, which is really one of the the basis for this this course that I'm, I'm doing on joy, in one discourse he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, the gladness that's connected with the wholesome I call an equipment of mind for overcoming ill will and hostility. The gladness that's connected with the wholesome is an, it's part of your toolkit to overcome ill will and hostility. That is, develop loving kindness and compassion. So he says, when you're in the middle of a wholesome moment, feel the gladness of it. That's very good. It's a good thing to do. And that's where 
this maintaining and increasing wholesome states is, I think, so helpful. Because sometimes we can be in the middle of a, of a sweet experience. Oh, I'm just feeling so much openness and gratitude. You know, and think, well, I got lucky that time. You know? Well, that was a fluke. You know? But I know how I really am or where I really go. You know? Wow, that was grace. And then it's gone. You can actually... Use the mindfulness practice to maintain and increase that state by just being present for it. Because that's the predominant experience of what's happening. You're feeling gratitude, you're feeling wholeness, you're feeling well-being or, or um, uh, joy. That's what's happening. Not to think, oh well, okay, feeling joy. Don't get attached. Let's go back to the breath. <laughs> Mindfulness is not attachment. Being present for the wholesome is not unskillful. Only if you get into, oh, I hope this doesn't go away. And that's just one hair's breath away. As you get attached, oh, yeah, this is so groovy. How do I keep it here? You're, in, you're setting yourself up for a problem. But if you say, oh, how, how delicious this is, let me just really feel this. I would really encourage you, well, those moments that you're quite enjoying the moment mindfully, without getting lost in a story, be here for it. Don't miss it. Because as you are, it really registers, as you let it register deeply, particularly in your body, it's more available for you. You just start to tune into that experience and it gets, gets activated in other ways. And the insights that, can, that come when you're in that space are here for you. I can think of a, a moment in IMS in Barry, Massachusetts where I was in the dining room stirring a cup of cafex and the whole universe opened up to me. Or I should say, I had a very um, moving understanding of impermanence. And all I need to do, just like right now as I talk about it, go back in that moment, stirring my cup of cafex, and I remember what I saw. I call it cafex consciousness. You know? <laughs> It's very cool, but I, I wish I could bottle it and share it with you. But you have your own CAFIX consciousness. You know, somebody comes in and says, for in an interview, you know, yesterday I was walking down towards the, towards the dining hall, and I just took this step, and all of a sudden, I realized there was nobody here. And it just blew my mind. It was so amazing. And then they can, they'll go on and talk, and sometimes they'll say, well, well just hold on a moment. Let's hang out there for a moment. And I'll just... It's so available. Oh, yeah. What was that like? Mm -hmm. And and thinking, as they say, well, you know, I know that it it might not ever happen again. Um, In just a moment of reflection, here it is again. I just want to ask you, as I'm thinking about it, any moment between the start of the retreat and now where you were touched or moved. 
Okay. How many people can come up with one moment of, of understanding or seeing something uh, or a state of well-being? Okay. I'd like you to just go inside and remember where you were in that moment. Just what was happening? Without grasping after it, just recall how it felt. Remember what it felt like in your body. And just relax into that. Because here it is again. can open your eyes. How many people got in touch and could remember? You didn't have to wait until a beautiful sitting tomorrow to do it, right? It was right here. The, the Buddha says, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Now, I'm not suggesting that you continually think back to that moment. But I am suggesting that when it registers deeply, let it be here, be very present for it, and just know that your mind can be inclined in that way. Because once you touch it, and if it's really truth, it's not so much manufacturing the experience again. It might not have the same bells and whistles, but just inclining the mind and letting yourself feel that again. Here it is. When the mind isn't confused, that insight is available to you. And you see the world through that lens of understanding. Hmm. Wise effort comes from wise intention. The intention to be mindful, the intention to make the effort to be here, develops wise effort and mindfulness. The intention to be happy, that's the basis of metta practice, May I be happy, even if it doesn't feel like it's here in the moment. You're planting the seed, you're sowing the seed for that to arise. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. Intention is very, very powerful. And we need to believe in the possibility of that intention and then we can put our whole heart into it. If you think something is impossible, then you'll make it impossible. And the Buddha said, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible. This is why I teach. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful news? If it were not possible, I would not tell you to do so. But it is. This is why I teach. Now you might think, oh well, 
I don't know if that's for me. It might be for everyone, but me? Don't get deceived in thinking it's for others and not you. It's possible for all of us. And as you get in touch with your intention to move towards greater happiness, that is what starts to manifest. As you see where real happiness lies and real real joy lies, that is a possibility that's very inspiring that makes you want to make the effort to be here. Your sincerity of intention is the main ingredient that you bring to this process. That's all you need. And it doesn't matter how soon it happens, how, how your meditation is going or seeming to be going. If you are facing in the right direction, you can let go of the timetable and just know you're doing your part. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. I have more that I wanted to share, but I'll save it for the the next talk. I'll just close with this uh, beautiful poem that points to this, um, what I've been talking about, by Dana Falls, called Awakening Now. She says, Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep. My prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. Let's sit for a moment.
This talk was given by James Barras at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 8, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.